0: This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from
1: 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Vogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And I'm here, as always, with Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well, Max. Uh, really well, actually. It's a beautiful day here in Valencia and Spain. How are you? Doing? I'm good. It's actually a pretty day in Boston. So. Oh, well, that's, that's wonderful. That's, nice. that's wonderful. <laughs> Who do we have on the pod today? Well, today we have Marcus Pomp. Uh, so, welcome to the 3D pod, Marcus. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And Marcus is uh, one of the founders of Domin, and Domin is one of my all time favorite startups uh, at the moment. So first off I'm all about right now, about application focused 3D printing startups, really an interesting area. I think from a, an investor f- viewpoint, I'm getting a lot of attention on that. And also from an entrepreneur viewpoint, and it's a really nice way to focus on one, not to make everything machine, but to focus on one application. And Dome is a really exciting example of this because they figure figured out how to engineer and design for additive using uh, sintering or DML, uh, DMLS and miraging steel, which is kind of interesting. Uh, to make uh, hydraulic uh, valves so hydraulic valves a very high-end application flow and mass flow can be improved with these things so you can optimize these actuators or these these, these valves they're used on aircraft and cars and all sorts of things and you can optimize also the mass and reduce the mass of this thing to make it more optimal and uh so i love this i love what delman's doing i love the company's ambition and uh so a huge fan of marcus and and, and delman as well so welcome to the 3d pod again marcus so Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how Domen got started. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Josh. It's some really
0: kind words you said about us there. Um, Domen got started a number of years ago, really, by myself and Andrew Collins. And we started the company with a shared ambition to make an impact in the world. And really, we had come across metal 3D printing um, while we were working in the aerospace industry. And we've been using it for prototyping and really to drive programs through really quickly. And we looked at this technology and we thought, you know what, there's something a bit more here. There's more than just prototyping. It's a production technology like any other. And so during that, we were looking at the technology and we sat down with each other and decided that we wanted to change the world. And additive was going to be the thing that enabled us to do that. So we combined our knowledge of high performance control within the aerospace industry with our experience within that world with metal 3D printing and asked ourselves the question, where can we make the biggest impact? Where can we bring the best change? Where can we make the most disruption? And it was hydraulics. And so Domin came about through the combination of a desire to make change experience in aerospace and a revolutionary production technology that is metal
1: 3D printing. So hydraulics, any kind of like optimization of the the internal flow of the internal chambers is going to get you a better result, right?
0: That's right. And hydraulics is an industry that hasn't changed for so many years. There are so many technologies that have passed hydraulics by. So the internet digital control, (laughs) high-performance motors. They pass the industry by and Additive has come along and Additive opens up all these opportunities. And as you say, you can make things now that you just couldn't even dream of making before. And that allows you to make products that are smaller, lighter, higher performance. You can add more complexity for less cost. And just the opportunities that it opens up are phenomenal
2: was was this kind of like low hanging fruit on some level and that it, it using additive opened up the ability to make this so much easier that you were able to quickly produce something or did this still take like a huge amount of time and effort to start seeing results i don't mean to make it seem like you're not doing like a lot of work but <laughs> no that's
0: a great question and and um one that any company that has looked to take hardware to market knows that there's no such thing as low hanging fruit when it comes to taking a hardware product to a customer. Um, But, but actually where we started with high performance servo valves is low hanging fruit in the sense that it's a great product for additive and it's a great product because it has a really high value to weight. And as you guys will know, 3D printing 10 years ago had a very different economic proposition than it does today. And so we had to really focus on a product that was expensive compared to the amount of mass you needed to use to make it. And so that's where high-performance servo valves come into their own because with 50 grams, 200 grams of 3D printing, we can create value of a thousand pounds plus. So with respect to the opportunity for us, high performance servo valves was that low hanging fruit. And it's just the start of a much bigger revolution for us.
2: Are you, are and, you guys just focused on valves or do you see even more applications? No, we on the we see
0: even more for sure. And, um, what's really interesting is we started off as a, as looking at valves because of that, that opportunity, but what we found very quickly, and this was one of the mistakes we made in the beginning of the company as any any wide-eyed startup can do is we started to explore every opportunity that came in front of us. so we looked at flight controls, we looked at pumps, we looked at motors, we looked at transmissions and everything we looked at, it was almost the sort of everything we touched turned to gold. And we realized actually the opportunity in hydraulics was phenomenal and that everything in hydraulics was up for disruption. And that was great and that was exciting in the beginning, but we realized that if we did that, this low hanging fruit, this opportunity might never happen because we get distracted. And so we decided to focus in on delivering servo valves to the market and we took an uncompromising approach to that and made sure that the valves we developed were the best in every metric. So they're the fastest, they're the smallest, they're the lightest they're um the most efficient and all of those things but in doing that the technology that we've developed within valves the this revolutionary technology that we've got which encompasses additive is actually applicable into bigger systems so our ambition opens back up again now we have this product in the market we can use that to leverage the position we're in and go go after bigger systems and. Hydraulics: the real value gets added when you look start looking at solutions. So we see the real long-term opportunity for Domin is in providing solutions and systems to customers. Um, for example, an active suspension system that will allow a car to float, and the passengers inside the car, as far as they're concerned, are floating around on a car um, with no no feeling of the road. And that's where we see the long-term future for Domin is providing systems and solutions to end users.
1: Yeah. Cause I think it's really interesting that your technology is like, you're using, I think you're using, use RenderShaw and AOS, uh, use the regular powders. You use, there's no widget that's in your technology. Your technology right, you didn't add something. No. It, yeah. Your technology is, it's a design and engineering methodology that allows you to manufacture these things well and cost-effectively. Right?
0: That's absolutely right. And it's really interesting that you pick up on that because whilst we're using revolutionary technology, we're using fundamental core engineering and business principles in order to deliver value with those those technologies that have been developed. And we we think, and we believe that the future of additive and the real value from additive is in the application of the technology. machine makers facilitate applications they don't create value in and of themselves and so we do see that additive is, has to shift now into the application sector because if it doesn't it will become a technology of history that never gets fully utilized and that's where we think we are leading the way
1: I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. And I, th- I think also, like, so, so what, what is, give, give us a little bit of a deeper dive in how you, you apply your technology or your way of thinking to, to, or how you've applied it so far.
0: Again, that's a really good question. And it's something that we are looking to disrupt as well. And I think we borrow quite a lot from um, software in many ways. And classically, within engineering firms, you end up, with divisions that look at different areas of the process. So you might have a design department, you might have a stress department where you're looking at finite element analysis. You might have a flow optimization department and each one of those departments operates independently of one another, with interface communications between them. And what ends up happening there is you have competing desires within each department. So for example, the stress engineer wants to make sure the part doesn't break, but the production engineer wants to make it as cheaply as possible. Now within additive, the solution for the stress engineer is to add more material, but every gram you add to your additive product makes it more expensive. And so your product engineer, your production engineers, and your stress engineers end up competing against each other. And without being able to take a look at the holistic product, you, you'll never end up with the most efficient technology. So whilst we use those those core engineering principles, we realized we had to borrow the an approach that that people take in software, which is a full stack approach. And so what we do is we have a we look at the technology across the whole stack. So we look at the control that controls the motors, we design the motors, we look at the stress, we look at the CFD. We look at the production and we empower everyone within the organization to be able to take a look at that full stack principle. And whilst not everybody is doing everything, because as you can imagine, the complexity of that grows pretty quickly. We make sure we develop people that have the ability to be able to think across that whole technology stack in order to deliver the most value to the product. And that's the journey that we went on as a business and come back to your question from before, Max, or you asked whether it was low hanging fruit and whether it was <laughs> quick and easy. And um, one of the reasons it wasn't is because no one knew the answers to the questions we had in the beginning. So when we asked experts in the field, what's the fatigue strength of printed metal? Nobody knew, nobody could give us an answer. And so in the beginning we had to spend 12 to 18 months just trying to understand the limitations of the material what could we do with it how could we design with it how could we print it would it last i mean we were being told right from the very beginning by people outside of the industry is it going to be dense is it is it going to leak And so we we had to answer those questions. Through doing that, we've ended up creating a structure internally that that forces us to look at that whole technology stack to deliver the best value. I
2: was going to say, out of that, you got some pretty amazing results. I mean, you're hundreds of percent smaller than the equivalent component, and that's a massive thing. Is the cost coming to a similar price point? Or is it, I mean, I I know these are high-end devices to begin with but are they is it cost competitive to the existing stuff that's on the market
0: the short answer is yes um i mean okay. <laughs>
2: n- not to the same degree as
0: i mean we we look at products that are a fifth of the size of their competitor and we're not producing them for a fifth of the cost right but, but, but that's not the they point they are they are cost competitive and i think one thing that's really interesting in the additive world is we're manufacturing parts that are cost competitive in an industry where a few hundred machines are sold each year. And we're competing against people who are making products on a casting machine that have been around for how many decades and are sold in, I don't know what quantity. So they are getting all the economies of scale to make their products cheaper. And effectively we are making products using low volume equipment And still cost competitive. So we know the cost of 3D printing is going to get ever cheaper. And every time a company launches a new application, we end up in a virtuous circle where needing that application requires more machines to be made. More machines will make the process cheaper, and making the process cheaper will unlock more applications. And that cycle will repeat until we end up in a position where 3D printing becomes significantly cheaper than where it is today. And so not only do we have good margin today, we know that our margin is only ever getting better and our competitors are not.
1: Mm-hmm. I love that, I love it. But yeah. also I, uh, I think what uh, I really like to go back a little bit to that full stack as well is DFAM, the whole design factor manufacturing never made sense to me. Cause it's just, it's, it's like a defensive play. It's kind of like, you have to do this cause otherwise you won't understand. But to me, looking at this holistically looking at a part holistically, like I did in this flow article I wrote, like looking at a part from an idea of it, of looking at all the things we, that is knowable about this part and then designing it also it minimizes these feedback loops, right. In the part itself, but also in the organization. Yeah. So in the organization, I've seen this really like on the OEM side, you get exactly what you, what you were characterizing that people were competing against each other, but also in the organization there's like different projects going on and different loops of, of attention going on. So that also distorts your view of the part
0: yeah i completely agree with that and i think that that if you don't look at the product holistically you do end up creating solutions to problems that don't really exist and that's a real challenge for incumbents who are trying to utilize additive manufacturing because in order to create a new product using disruptive technology you have to first destroy the product that you're currently selling and from a structural point of view as a company that's actually a very difficult thing to do, but if you don't do that, then all you ever do is is tinker around the edges because. who's brave enough to destroy their existing product line right in order to be able to develop something that philosophically achieves the same outcome, but does it better and cheaper and. Um,
1: it's difficult to say to Sarah across the room that, you know, we're essentially going to get rid of your job, you know? Yeah. I think that also yeah. that also really helps a lot of people uh, to stick, in, stick to what they know and stick to, you became kind of like, you became kind of like a, a, a prisoner of your own KPIs and your own organization, in fact. Exactly
0: right. And if you don't create uh, the infrastructure that rewards and promotes change what's in it for, for you? Why are you gonna stick your head above the parapet inside an organization and say, yeah, let's kill this whole product line because I think we can do it better. You're not incentivized to do that. You're incentivized to deliver on time and get the next product out the door.
1: Yeah. Uh, also, I think your approach also minimizes what I call the bulb problem. What we're seeing in uh, desktop printer design was at one point something really strange. And, and essentially the best way to describe it is in the desktop printers, we saw people trying to uh, mechanically engineer themselves out of uh, a, a firmware problem right yeah. <laughs> so they were, they were changing the <laughs> printer <laughs> the printer design because they did because they, what they really wanted to do was to change the the encoder or the or the or the, the speed of the, um, uh, of, the serve, of the of the of uh, the stepper motors right so they wanted to they should have modulated that and that would have given them better results and instead of that they were trying to adapt the design of their printer to solve problems and I've never, we never understood why people were doing this. And then I call it the bulb problem. If you hire, like, you'd have four or five mechanical engineers. You only have one electrical engineer or one firmware guy, right? If bulb is not a good firmware guy, you're never going to know that you suck at firmware. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this is a similar kind of thing where if you do make, you know, you make everyone kind of like full stack and understand all these things, you'll have more people being able to think about more things instead of just having one CFD guy or one FAA guy or whatever. And then, and then making sure hopefully that she's really great at what she does. Right.
0: Absolutely. And we, we use a term internally. Um, I think it's a, a management consultant tool, which um, that's not my background, but we, we think about T-shaped people and I-shaped people and I-shaped people are those, those guys that you talk about, they they do one thing and they do it well. Um, or in Bob's case, he doesn't do it well. Um, but what we want to do is have people that do have a real speciality in one area but equally are able to look across everything to be able to question whether their colleagues are doing things properly and what the influence of the decisions they make have on other areas and Mm -hmm. if you don't do that you can end up going down a rabbit hole and as everyone in the in the additive world knows the complexity of additive is is high you're talking about variable material properties people are talking about printing in multiple metals in the same bed or or optimizing the the material properties during a build and with that added complexity comes added opportunity which is great and that's what we're all here for right but the problem with it is with that added complexity it means you can easily head down the rabbit hole and you can end up in a position that is nowhere near where you started, and doesn't add any value at all because you've taken that first decision incorrectly, and you end up going into a position where you've invested millions in trying to solve solve a problem that that didn't need solving. And it's a really interesting story you tell there because I think it's similar to some of the things I look at with 3D printing machines and how they how they were developed. Not so much today, but in in a period maybe two years ago to seven years ago, a lot of 3D printers were being designed around products that should never really have been printed so people were coming with these applications and saying let's print this thing and the 3d printing manufacturers were saying great we've got an application but the application should just never have been printed and so these machines are being designed to print i don't know maybe a 50 kilogram um, part that you're never going to make any money from it just shouldn't it shouldn't be printed. It needs to be designed from first principles in order to look at the whole the whole product before you start looking at taking ten percent out of a huge item.
2: Do you have yeah, a favorite a good... example of, of things we should not print? <laughs>
0: yeah, that's a really good question. Um, from From my world, um, yeah. I don't think that you should be printing a hydraulic manifold without okay. without actually redesigning the thing that the manifold goes within. Um, And I think that's really where we've taken a different approach with these, these servo valves than other people is, yeah, our manifold is printed, and it needs to be printed in order to deliver the the outcome that we want. But it's only been printed, because the whole product warrants it being printed. It's not just been done to make the manifold lighter. And that's where we see so many people printing manifolds to make them lighter. But so what? Who, but they're who not who rethinking
2: else. the fundamentals there which they're not is the rethinking real core problem it. and
0: so you end up with something that maybe is 10% smaller than it was which is great but actually the problems in society won't be solved by making 10% changes they get they get solved by look, by making a 100% change
2: yeah. no that makes sense things that that can still be casted or centered yeah. why are you bothering to use the printer other than to say like how does this look if uh, without making the cast of the mold to make one or two yeah. for prototyping, but beyond Absolutely. that what's what's the point of this yeah
0: it's so. a great question. I' would love to i I will go away and think about what my favorite thing yeah. that can be printed is yeah.
1: g nozzle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh that's uh, uh, <laughs> awful anyway so <laughs> it's uh yeah the least expendable part of a plane engine right right um, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, anyway, so um but i think i think what is uh what i really like uh about this whole thing is okay you, you the, the first principles idea i like as well but also you also mentioned before that you did a lot of testing a lot of data and this is another fdm example where a guy came, which <laughs> is really terrible, actually. He, had, he presented his master's thesis, right? And it was all about uh, like tensile strength of different materials and stuff, and, and parts and laws. And, um, and then I just instantly uh, asked the question of, um, of, of if he'd measured the actual nozzle temperature of the FDM printer he was using, right? And so he just had, had imagined that the, the temperature that the, temp- the printer told him that the nozzle was was the actual temperature. And that's what he assumed no. uh, done. So the, the the research was essentially like it was just it was just garbage. Yeah. <laughs> so it was just like, it was a really tragic because I asked it really kind of very kind of semi innocently and uh, and it was like oh you just spent a year and a half doing that. <laughs> 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 something that's completely useless and it was it was just like and it's that kind of little small mistake or small thing but and for yeah. metal it gets yeah you know, I always say it's like it's a step change more difficult metal but you know for metal it's it's like okay. So it's nice you think of this the fatigue strength thing, right? But that's actually the reason why people didn't know it, because it depends on where you're printing, what orientation, yeah. what, what yeah. part of the bed, uh, what you're hatching uh, is like. I don't know. There's a ton of stuff that, that could influence that, right? Yeah, absolutely. How, so how did you go about trying to test all of that?
0: I mean, that's it's, crazy. It's a great question. And actually, the conclusion that we came to is you can't you can't do it and if you try and do it yeah. you'll end up you'll end up tying yourself into knots and yeah. and actually you end up with a situation where your cost of quality is 10 times the cost of the product we came to that conclusion after testing hundreds and hundreds of, <laughs> of product on the coupons and I think in terms of fatigue cycles I think we're up towards 400, 500 million fatigue cycles. Even with that, we're scratching the surface, right? And yeah. I think one of the, the, one of the times it really dawned on me yeah. that we had yeah. to take a different approach was when we were using the same machine from the same supplier with the same parameters, with the yeah. same material from the same supplier yeah. Yeah. in three different locations, one of which yeah was at the supplier and the fatigue strength that we got with the same parts on the same position of the bed was like an order of magnitude
1: between them. A software update? That's a fun one. Software update.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we didn't, unfortunately, we didn't have time to turn the machine off and on again, but it was that sort of, it was like that. And that was when we realized that we just couldn't manage the situation. So what we've done, The approach that we've taken is one where we've set up the infrastructure to be able to very quickly qualify a machine. So by that, I mean, we can very quickly understand the capability of the machine. We we won't change anything, but we can understand the capability. And once we've done that, we then can use it to make things. And then when we make them, rather than trying to measure what's happening in the machine and manage what's going on in the machine we just test every single product we make so every valve we ship to a customer has gone through
1: a million cycles of fatigue i love you for this because one of my big yes. bugbear things is i'm always i'm always like okay so i always really believe in in yeah, CT, for example, for for metal parts, or like a thing like this. Uh, Was it the Axiona scanner, the the that does RA and uh, and no dimensional accuracy for all, for parts as well. And I maintain that because of the variabilities of the process, right, um, we can't guarantee uh, quality uh, yeah. unless we measure every single part, right. And I've I've been saying that for polymer and for metal, and everybody always says no, no, no. We can just do. We can just use the old methods. And my whole point is the old methods where we took one block of material, it's always the same, and we carried out the same operation. Yeah. In exactly the same way. And we're totally not doing this now. Right? And and so we're, we're just like building these objects up in a completely different way with different residual heat, with different paths of a laser, at different points uh, in a bed with uh, all sorts of things that are changing. And and so we have to individually call uh, do QA on, on every single part. Measure everything. So I'm always like, do you have an automated CMM solution or do you have an automated or why are there more scanners coming out but to automate this entire process? And especially in the mass customization thing, I think it's unavoidable that we have to test every single one.
0: Yeah, and I think the biggest thing that that jumps out at me is as I was progressing in my, my career in business management, somebody gave me a book called Measure What Matters. And it's about making sure that the, the KPIs that you set for the business Are actually important are you measuring what is important to deliver success for the business and that's true for anything that you print are you measuring the things that influence the outcome of the product and for us the dimensions that are inside the flow galleries don't matter it's irrelevant to the product outcome what matters is the flow and so what do we do we measure the flow and we make sure we have enough margin that means we always achieve the same thing and this is true for fatigue for us as well we don't care what what the weight of the material is within a few grams it doesn't matter and it doesn't matter whether the there are a few thousands or a few hundreds of a millimeter out dimensionally as long as it survives as long as it does what the customer needs and i think measuring what matters is something that's really important for the printing industry to to come to terms with because if you're measuring the emissivity of the heat pool does it matter and if you don't know whether it matters or not why measure it
1: one of my favorite versions for the metal printing is a target ra so this whole idea about surface roughness this focus that there needs to be a kind of like surface roughness and there's a goal right yeah and then often you ask these guys like why is it two right? <laughs> or whatever right or where did you get the two from right does it yeah. mean something right and it makes sense if you have like a mating surface or something i get it right yeah. you, you wanted to to be able to be to put a bolt on there or something right but at the same time for a lot of these things they just like make up the numbers at one point and then they're stuck in this thing <laughs> right uh, that's just crazy i don't know so I, I love your you have no idea how excited i am by this this uh, this thing any kind of data on this kind of like QA, QC, everything kind of approach really excites me. I
0: was going to say the most exciting thing for us is so far, every single valve we've sold has passed this test. And that means our cost of quality is actually really low because we haven't had any failures. So I know there's a little bit of a discussion about insurance kind of thing here, where if you don't ever claim on your insurance it's cost you money and if you don't get insurance and nothing breaks then you've made money but because we're we're capturing this at the end of the process the risk is that the process is unstable and we therefore end up with a, a high cost of low yield but the the calculations that we've made and the decisions that we've made effectively mean that the margin of safety that we put on the design is lower than the cost that it would be to monitor the process during, during the production. And so we end up cheaper overall because even though we've added all of the value to the products, the cost of the margin is, is low enough and the, the yield is high.
1: That I think also could bring you very, very significant advantage. If you go into multiple product lines, right. Yep. In multiple designs and multiple areas and multiple finishes and everything.
0: Yeah. And then as you build up the data, As you build up the evidence, you start taking tests away. So at the moment we test every single valve, but once we've tested a million valves and every single one passes, we start testing every other valve. And so we, not only at the moment, do we have a credible quality system that allows us to deliver high performance, high pressure, um, products to, to markets that are not forgiving to failure. But also, we have a clear path to reduce that cost of quality. And I've only ever heard of people wanting to add to the cost of quality, and they want to measure more things. and And we have a great path to taking cost out of quality. And as you say, we can then apply that to other products in order to make it cheaper in the long run.
1: Yeah. There's also another thing that's quite interesting. I don't know if you, if this is tactical or you maybe not involved much about it, but typically, if you qualify a printer for a part, like in an aviation kind of a thing you're kind of there's a bit of a, a little problem in 3D printing is that you're kind of essentially stuck with the same material and the same printer. Yeah. Uh, and some cases, same software uh, update specifically uh, forever, right? Because you need to make that part in exactly the same way. Right. Um, and and then you'd have to maybe, depending on the part, re-qualify that part if you get a new printer or even if you yeah. get new software. Right. And that's, of course, a bit of a problem. <laughs> He went as far as to buy Arcam, right? To <laughs> semi solve this problem. But I think you've come up with a little bit more, a different solution because with the same system, you could upgrade. You you actually could yeah. incredibly leave your current vendor, right? And go to someone else, right? Uh, everyone else doing kind of like uh, critical parts can't. Realistically speaking, you can't leave because you'll have to spend millions of dollars kind of requalifying everything.
0: Yeah. No, this was very much by design, actually, very much by design, okay. because we were competing technologies at the time. And one of the things that that we realized is that every six months, there's a better machine that comes out. Mm-hmm. And if that's happening every six months, you've got to be pretty sure you're going to be able to leverage the value of future machines. And so we very much did it by design. We... I have to be honest we haven't quite been able to persuade the aerospace industry that the approach we're taking is the right approach yet but I think <laughs> um <laughs> I, I think we'll get there with it because I think the value that it adds is so high and the risk is so low and actually you mentioned maraging steel in the beginning and it's one of the reasons we love steel is because it has a a flattened fatigue life so what that means is there is a theoretical point at which it lasts forever and so if you test a product above that point and it survives say a million cycles then you can pretty much from a physics point of view guarantee that that product is going to last forever and so steel gives us a really good competitive advantage within the um the quality world because we can Almost guarantee that a product's not going to fail once it's passed our test.
1: That's not the only reason no, you really. use. Uh, that's not the only reason you use steel, right? No, it's not the only
0: reason, but it's a really compelling one for us. Steel is a is a great material. It's it's underrepresented in the world. Um, it's sort of seen as an old-fashioned material. But uh, I'm a keen cyclist, and carbon fiber has taken over the cycling world in the last decade but there's a small but growing community of steel bike enthusiasts that are that I sort of think is maybe the start of the revolution for 3D printing as well because what they are saying is true steel can be just as light as as many other materials and and actually additive is something that changes the value proposition here as well because in aerospace you want parts to be as light as possible and um with subtractive machining often you end up with material that's not utilized so if you think about it if you in order to actually maybe withhold the pressure in a manifold you only need maybe half a millimeter of of metal maybe a millimeter in really high pressure stuff um, but actually is you end up with products that are millimeters tens of millimetres in places. And the reason for that is because you have to operate subtractively. So every time you remove material, it adds cost. And that means that often you have to make this difficult trade in order to get the lightest product. You end up looking for materials where they have the lowest density, because you know, then you can trade cost of machining with weight. Um, so you almost are uh, the weight of the product is almost determined by the weight of the wasted material, the material that's not actually contributing to the function. Yeah. And with additive, you throw that on its head. With additive, you only use material that you need because you're forced to, because the process requires you to, to add material in through your design, so you only put it where you need it. So you're no longer worried about the density of the product, the, the density no longer influences the weight the thing that determines the weight of the product is its strength to weight ratio so density takes out the equation and you look at this ratio of strength to weight or ratio of stiffness to weight or fatigue strength to weight and what you find when you do that is actually steel has a higher fatigue strength to weight than most titaniums it's has a higher stiffness to weight than titanium and therefore, once you're designing to only use the material you need to use, actually steel gives you the lightest product and not only that, but steel is somewhat cheaper than titanium, and so you end up with the cheapest product as well.
1: Yeah, I love this. And I told, it's also yeah. Somebody did a similar calculation, these guys are using the aluminum, right, they also have this, al- yeah, whatever the stupid name of aluminum. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, they also came to the similar conclusion, but they say, ah, the speed of the machine is paramount we can run it faster so for us as aluminum makes a lot of sense and this is, it's also a different kind of version of the same kind of uh, yeah. thinking let's say uh and because I, that then all these other things also fall by the wayside right
0: yeah absolutely and i can i can see if if um cost is the thing that's important to you then i can definitely see that that that's the case um and there are so many factors that come into this for different materials right because we found that steel was more forgiving to print with, so we could be more extreme in our designs than we could with titanium. Um, For example, with aluminium, aluminium is not very stiff. So for us, we never quite managed to have the stiffness that we needed. But yeah, I mean, fundamentally, I think what I'm saying is that you can't use the same material that you use today if you want to achieve the same outcome. You've got to start from the beginning. You've got to come back to this first principles point of view and say, what am I trying to achieve here? And if you're trying to achieve the lightest product, then it might no longer be aluminium, it might no longer be titanium, it might be steel. Um, so you really have to go back to first principles again.
1: That's an interesting approach. And, and you also, like you guys also produce yourself. Well, you have a setup where, where the production's in Poland, right? And you engineer everything in the UK, right?
0: Yeah, that's correct. And the, the thing that actually we, we outsource the most is printing, strangely because it's the thing that we've developed the process to be able to use those subcontractors. So we work with a number of people to say, let's quickly qualify the machine and then be our supply chain. Um, But we have some, with, with hydraulics, you end up with some very high value manufacturing processes along the journey. And so not only have we developed the product, but we've also spent a lot of time and worked with a great team in order to develop really good production processes, which, which mean we can machine things to micron precision in order to get the re- required outcome that we need, but do it in a low cost way and do it in a way that we get it right every time. So we have some really high value, high precision machinery that we we own in house and the processes that we've developed internally. Um, and they're really key for us to be able to deliver great products to customers. And I think this is one of the things that, again, you get your eyes open to after you've taken your first half step into the 3D printing world. There aren't many products that you just print and ship. You almost have, you almost always have to do something to them afterwards. And this is true for us as well. And we've invested a huge amount of time in additive, but We've invested a huge amount of time in making sure that once we've printed the part, we can do everything else we need to it to end up in with the final, final product and so a bit like that sort of full stack approach to engineering. We take much more of a vertical approach to our, our production chain, I guess a bit more like, um, Tesla would take compared to some of the existing automotive companies, Tesla make everything right. They manufacture their batteries. They they make everything, whereas a lot of more classic engineering companies have structured themselves to be a very horizontally based company. And you get some real benefits with that. You can expand your supply chain, you can dual source, but you lose some of the value. And just like we have with the product, with the production process, we found that we had to, we had to bring it in house and we had to vertically integrate that into the business to get the most value
1: i really almost think that this combination of the full stack with the production methodology and the qualification is almost a whole entirely new startup you could really accelerate <laughs> people's business you could really accelerate other people's businesses with that
0: I, I really believe that's true and i think yeah uh, I agree in another life <laughs> in another life there's a uh, a firm that goes around and applies these techniques to
1: companies but not for me <laughs> So what are your goals for, 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 for Dome and then you're uh, looking the next couple of years? Yeah. So I think we're right on,
0: on this position where we're entering the growth phase of the business for us. So we are, we're driving revenue, we're, we're looking to grow quickly from here on in. We've, we've solved a lot of the problems, as you just mentioned, we sort of created the solution now. And so it's about generating revenue, growing the business and leveraging the technology into other areas. And ultimately our long-term goals for the business is to become the best in the world and to really lead the hydraulics industry into the future. One of the things we haven't really talked about today is the sustainability piece. And the hydraulics industry as a whole is is hiding in plain sight and i mean by that that hydraulics is in everything you you mentioned it at the beginning it's in planes it's in ships it's in machines it's in oil and gas it's everywhere but it's still from the 20th century and from a sustainability point of view the average hydraulic system is somewhere in the 20% efficient so 80% of the energy you're putting in is being wasted as heat or sound and for us that doesn't work in the 21st century we don't have that many resources in the world we have to we have to change that and so our long-term ambition is to lead the revolution towards a, a much more sustainable future for hydraulics and fundamentally rethink the approach to energy use so that we only use energy where we need to so to give you an example of that with a forklift you have a forklift and what does a forklift do? It lifts something up and it puts it down again. Now, when you lift something up and put it down, there's no change in energy. You've added no energy to anything. You haven't had to move anything really yet. You've had to use an engine, a pump, some valves to lift this thing up. And you do the same to take it down. And what we're developing and what we're looking to implement is a solution where you can recover all of that energy and so actually you can run a forklift without using any energy because once you've lifted it up you drop it back down and recover all the energy so we we really want to create the sustainable future of hydraulics and focus on that demand side piece of resources in order to really question why are you even using energy there and the the technology that we've developed in valves allows us to achieve that and we are we're able to apply that technology to be able to deliver ultra highly efficient both energy delivery and energy recovery in order to fundamentally change the efficiency of hydraulic systems and really be thinking about shifting the energy piece from 20% efficient to 800%. And we want to lead that change in the industry. And hydraulics is a big industry. And if we achieve that, we'll be in a really great place.
1: Oh, okay. So literally you're kind of trying to, the literal way of saying that would be to make valves digital, like to, to use like encoders or, um, exactly you know, a way right. to like visually, uh you know, precisely kind of like uh, uh, use them or not. Yeah. We think about what we're,
0: what we're doing with systems and providing these solutions, we we want to create the, the digital hydraulics of the future and digitizing hydraulics. And we mean that in a, in a multiple different ways. We, we want to apply digital control to hydraulics. We want to use digital systems so people can communicate with their, their things, but also we want to digitize the whole hydraulic infrastructure so you can think of it a little bit like electronics and electronics used to be controlled using resistors and and used to have to build up these big circuits and now with the introduction of um of almost pulse width modulation control electronics was be able to was able to be revolutionized and become ever smaller and smaller and ever more efficient to be able to deliver energy in a digital way and we have the technology to be able to do that in hydraulics as well and at the moment hydraulics is generally run through pumps delivering flow and valves throttling and resisting that flow and we're looking to digitize that energy piece so that we can deliver packets of energy in order to be able to put those packets where they need to go but only where they need to go and not have a resistive control so the the digital hydraulics is where we see the future but digital in every sense of the world and every sense of the word and with that we we think we can we can really create revolution in the industry and and open up new opportunities as well so one of the the other things that we're looking to deliver on at the moment is this active suspension system and at the moment, hydraulics doesn't allow you to do that because of the inefficiencies, because of the cost. It's not appropriate to use it with, with active suspension. But because of this high-speed digital hydraulic control, we're able to deliver an active suspension system that is it is efficient, it is ultra-fast, and it's, it's opening up these new technologies. And we want to lead the way on this, and we want to be building a, a huge global company that makes an impact and is up there with the greats in the world.
1: Uh, thank you so much, Marcus. That's uh, really wonderful. And uh, Max, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, no, thank you, Joris. Thank you very much, and, uh Thank you. And thank you guys for listening. And this is another episode of the 3D Pod. My name is Joris Peels. Have a great day.
0: You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore
1: com.